Okay, let me tell you a story. So, there is this tiny, small, pearl-shaped island nation in the southern part of the Bay of Bengal, floating in the Indian Ocean. It's documented history, going back over 3,000 years, and it's home to a few of the earliest known Buddhist writings, been a hub for international trade throughout most of medieval history, and obviously, with a rich depot of spices and luxury, then unimaginable to Westerners. Then, of course, all the colonial restructuring aside, from the Portuguese to the Dutch to the British and now the independent nation that it is, today, Sri Lanka is a multinational state, home to diverse cultures, languages and ethnicities. Okay, this is where we talk about the important part. Today, Sri Lanka is facing the worst economic crisis since gaining independence in 1948. The recession is attributed to foreign exchange shortages caused by the clampdown on tourism during the COVID-19 pandemic. But that gets much more interesting as we take a deeper dive. This, overall, has left the country unable to buy enough fuel, with people facing acute scarcity of food and necessities, heating fuel and gas. As protests over fuel shortages erupted across the nation, Sri Lanka deployed troops to fuel stations. And this is actually only one of the country's many problems. Sri Lanka is experiencing a full-fledged economic collapse. The situation has become even more bleak due to the country's rising prices and obviously the debt crisis. Private banks have run out of foreign exchange to finance imports, resulting in again severe shortages. Since January, even India has helped Sri Lanka with about 2.4 billion US dollars, including a 400 million currency swap and a 500 million loan deferment. Last month, Sri Lanka signed a $1 billion credit line with India to procure food, medicine and other essential items. And just the past week, the current party in power had to declare a state of internal emergency to deal with the mass protests being demonstrated throughout the country. But the question is, how did it get to the state? Wasn't Sri Lanka a prospering nation? Where does China come into all of this? Is this the death trap of China's diplomacy? Is this the fate that beholds almost the entirety of the African subcontinent? We'll answer all of those and more in today's episode. You are going to want to sit through this. Without any delay, let's get right into it. Roll the intro. Cash me if you can. Your gateway into the world of financial freedom. It all begins with money. A little here, a little there. Okay, let me tell you something. The lack of foreign currency is the source of Sri Lanka's economic woes. I think I've established that. So the thing is, the country now can't import fuel, food or other essentials because it doesn't have enough foreign currency reserves to do that. So let's trace it back from the beginning. After making bold campaign promises to rebuild Sri Lanka's infrastructure, Mahinda Rajpaksa was elected president of the country in 2005. When he first took office, he struck a deal with the Chinese state-owned enterprise called China Harbour to develop the Hambantota port, located in the south of the island. Sri Lanka isn't exactly flush with cash, so the contract with China Harbour was pricey. As a portion of the bill, 
Sri Lanka borrowed about 307 million from the Chinese Export Import Bank, then 700 million at a high interest rate, and finally a billion dollar from the Chinese Export Import Bank. The port had become a commercial failure when Rajpaksa left office and the country owed China more than 3 billion dollars. Following negotiations, Sri Lanka agreed to hand over control of the port to China. For the next 99 years, China will now own a port with geostrategic significance due to its location in the Indian Ocean. Allow me to explain. So the pandemic hit one of Sri Lanka's most important sources of foreign revenue, tourism. Not only did foreign tourist numbers decline, but so did remittances from Sri Lankan expertise, exacerbating the problem. Sri Lanka's foreign reserves have been depleted by over 70% due to alleged economic mismanagement by successive governments with only 2.3 billion ish remaining after the debt repayment of over 4 billion dollars Sri Lanka's high reliance on imports for essential commodities such as sugar pulses and cereals fuel the country's economic meltdown as the island nation lacks the necessary foreign reserves to pay its import bills According to Rajpaksa Sri Lanka could face about a 10 billion dollar trade deficit this year. Okay, this is where it gets interesting. Concessionary loans from China account for nearly 10% of Sri Lanka's total foreign debt. Though the country has also obtained commercial loans from Chinese state banks. The Chinese investment of about 1.4 billion in Sri Lanka's Colombo Port City project is the country's most significant single foreign investment. The government of Sri Lanka and the CHCC Port City of Colombo (CPCC) have formed a public private partnership called Project CHEC Port City Colombo so the port i'm sorry for the pronunciation the Hamban Tota port was leased for 99 years to China Merchant Port Holdings the Sri Lanka Ports Authority and CMPH now jointly operate the port with CMPH controlling nearly all operations and owning 80% of the harbor so obviously as a part of the loan repayment process Sri Lanka had to hand over control of the port and china just took it gladly now the thing is the port although built with chinese funds was an unnecessary expenditure especially given sri lanka's dire economic situation the colombo port city economic commission bill which sri lanka's parliament passed in may last year was rather intriguing so this law grants the commission special taxation and new project and investment powers including the ability to tax foreign nationals now it gets even more interesting because chinese military personnel has been reported working in the port's infrastructure so what exactly happened china used its economic clout to entangle governments in a web of debt and dependency that they were not quite aware about so what exactly is this debt trap diplomacy it is a way to describe a country's predatory lending practices practiced by china here which overburden emerging countries with unsustainable loans and force them to surrender strategic leverage to china in 2017 the time when this term was first used and within a year it had spread throughout the media intellectual circles and western governments its original meaning like the terms original meaning of debt trap diplomacy has been broadened to encompass other parts of the globe the term was then further defined in 2018 by a report by the belfast center for science and international affairs at harvard kennedy school 
which describe debt trap diplomacy in Chinese geostrategic interests. So when a creditor country intentionally extends excessive credit to a debtor country to extract economic or political concessions from the debtor country when it is unable to meet its debt repayment obligations, this is referred to as debt trap diplomacy. The terms of the loans are frequently hidden and the borrowed funds are commonly used to pay contractors in the creditor country. So it is evident this term is mostly used for Chinese government-backed loans and also this is sometimes called the debt book diplomacy and in this sense, okay, understand this well enough because we'll talk about this a lot going forward. It refers to countries being offered projects or loans or projects with words that are too difficult to repay, forcing them to accept political or economic concessions. This whole theory of tetra diplomacy is frequently directed to state-owned companies and banks, joint ventures or private institutions rather than directly to the government. Experts have also noted that China employs this strategy throughout Asia, owing to President Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative. Several countries now owe China large sums of money. There was a report by the Atlantic I was reading where it said, and I quote, Once a country is weighed down by Chinese loans, like a hapless gambler who borrows from the mafia, it becomes Beijing's puppet and in danger of losing a limb. Okay, that brings me to the Belt and Road Initiative, which is how they do it. The Chinese government's Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion dollar initiative that provides large-scale loans to countries seeking to rebuild or build infrastructure projects, especially when they're interlinked with Chinese trade. The Belt and Road Initiative was announced in 2013 as an economic development initiative that would create new trade corridors across Asia, Europe and Africa, putting China at the top of the geoeconomic food chain while benefiting all parties involved. The rest was left to speculation, with a significant amount of meaning lost in the struggle for China to explain the initiative and the West's inability to comprehend it. This initiative has no publicly stated KPIs, no overarching institutionalization, no formal membership protocols, founding charters, and a relevant timeline that spans decades, if not centuries. While many news outlets have published articles and Pretty graphic text claiming the Belt and Road Initiative is a, you know, $1 trillion, $5 trillion initiative spanning 65 countries, 60% of the world's population, 75% of the world's energy resources, and 30% of the world's GDP. This is a little more than grasping at journalistic standards. So the thing is, even if you want to believe deep down in your heart that this is something China is doing for emerging countries, rather than trying to benefit from it. And when you are out looking for the proof of any of those claims, you'll find yourself floating in a Beijing vacuum. A speak land of mirages, where you can either take the illusions at face value or fall into an empirical black hole. Due to a lack of clarity on the Belt and Road Initiative, Beijing has lost control of its message. And that is actually one of China's biggest blunders, I would say. They suck at English PR. Because what they do within their country, they are brilliant at that, right? They convince their entire population of their methods. But China sucks 
maintaining their international image and that is kind of hurting them even here the belts and road initiative thereby has become a catch all term for anything china does outside of china and many of the actors who have used the bri brand have tarnished it it is quickly apparent that the belts and roads lazy fair undefined wide open strategy which appeared to yield significant gains in the early days is now one of the most significant barriers preventing it from becoming the paradigm shifting international endeavor that was intended to be corruption allegations have become common pleas among the bri the red card diplomacy theory has alarmed people all over eurasia so the bri has become an unattractive proposition in many markets because dozens of major china driven development projects across asia have become white elephants and also beijing became a victim of the bri initiative even the imf has scrutinized multiple aspects of the bri which has repeatedly warned of unsustainable debt levels predatory lending and a lack of project transparency before authorizing a credit line the imf will request more clarity on foreign currency payments including the details of bri loans to allay these fears even bri debt restructuring or reevaluating proposed infrastructure investments to determine if they are financially sound should be part of an imf program to complete the necessary debt sustainability analysis the imf will need to see the terms of the bri loans at the very least but those are not available given all these constraints there is a chance that the imf and china will disagree about the future of bri projects in debt ridden countries several international lending best practices including procurement transparency and dispute resolution are openly violated by chinese loans chinese contractors dominate infrastructure projects and chinese funded loans are less transparent than those from multilateral development banks beijing has also shown a reluctance to follow international investment standards by establishing two courts to settle bri related disputes outside existing dispute resolution mechanisms like even last year china enshrined bri in its constitution putting pressure on state owned enterprises and officials to continue lending one of china's initiatives the asian infrastructure investment bank or the aiib offers a model of tough reforms that beijing can accept despite some initial skepticism this beijing led development bank was established in 2015 and its operating procedures adhere to international standards the majority of its projects are co-funded by western institutions and are well documented the aiib and the world bank signed a memorandum of understanding in april of 2017 to deepen cooperation which china can use in discussions with the imf on debt relief now adopting these reforms will legitimize the bri while also easing some of the economic tensions between china and the us now speaking about the us they on the other hand concern about imf assistance being used to bail out chinese creditors and that is valid in the current situation if beijing agrees to clean up its act washington should encourage the imf to participate in bri countries while working through the imf to encourage china to improve its investment standards the us can encourage vital investment in developing countries and at the very least the imf process will enhance project transparency and put countries on a path to debt sustainability more importantly it will reduce the risk of recipient countries losing strategic assets in exchange for chinese debt forgiveness without the imf countries in financial distress due to bri loans will have few options for assistance outside of china and will become even more enslaved 
Okay, back to Sri Lanka. So as I was talking about, as a result of all this, Sri Lanka has evolved into a textbook example of a twin deficit economy, with national expenditure exceeding national income and imports exceeding exports. The country paid about four billion dollars in debt repayments in 2022, including a one billion dollar international sovereign bond due in July. At 12.55 billion, international sovereign bonds account for most of Sri Lanka's foreign debt. With the Asian Development Bank, Japan, and China, among the other major lenders, and let me tell you, unless it receives major assistance, the country may not be able to put itself back together. And again, to pay back the loan, much like our old friend the U.S., it has again sought loans from the Asian Development Bank, China, and India to survive the crisis. I mean, yeah, that's the only option forward. Meanwhile, according to the Reuters. The ruling coalition has lost its majority in parliament. President Gotabaya Rajapaksa has offered to form a unity government following the resignation of 26 ministers from Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksa's cabinet amid violent protests was rejected by the opposition. And as I said in the beginning, the protests are happening because of the severe shortages of food, fuel, and basically anything you need to survive. Meanwhile, get this: China has refused to make any debt repayment concessions. Sri Lanka's total debt to China is about eight billion U.S. dollars, or nearly one sixth of the country's total external debt of about forty-five billion U.S. dollars. Sri Lanka's foreign reserves are dwindling due to non-profitable construction projects financed by Chinese loans. And according to think tank European Foundation for South Asian Studies, the country's dollar-denominated debt repayments due this year total more than about around six billion dollars. Again, including, as I said, the ESB maturing in July. Rating agencies and economists are increasingly concerned that the country will be unable to pay, and then what happens? We'll see. China, as I was saying, refused to respond to Sri Lanka's request to restructure its massive debts, and in March, its ambassador to Sri Lanka stated that the country was more interested in a one billion dollar loan than a one point five billion dollar credit line. Okay, before I move on to Africa, get a sense of the situation as it is right now, because this. Can very well pan out in Africa, the entire subcontinent I am talking about, and many Asian countries. Okay, get this: Sri Lankans' daily lives have been turned into an endless cycle of waiting in lines for essential goods, many of which are rationed due to the crisis. Shops have been forced to close in recent weeks due to a lack of power to run refrigerators, air conditioners, or fans. Customers queue for hours in the sweltering heat to fill their tanks. And soldiers are stationed at gas stations to keep them calm. Some people have even died as a result of their impatience. One mother in Colombo, Sri Lanka's capital, told CNN that she was waiting for propane gas so she could cook meals for the family. Others also claim that the price for a piece of bread has more than tripled. While auto rickshaw and taxi drivers claim that the fuel rations are insufficient to support their livelihoods. Some people find themselves in an impossible situation. They must walk to feed their families while waiting in line for supplies. And according to CNN, a street sweeper with two young sons sneak away from work to join food lines before hurrying back. Even middle-class families with savings are concerned about running out of essentials such as medicine or gas. And life is made even more difficult. But the frequent power outages that leave Colombo in the dark for up to ten hours. The worsening plight of Sri Lankans has served 
as a stark warning to neighboring countries such as Pakistan, where much of the economic promise is based on Chinese calculations. Pakistan's situation is the most precarious. Pakistan is the top recipient of BRI aid, with projects worth about $27.3 billion. Similarly, high interest rates, strict repayment terms, and a lack of transparency have enstrained Pakistan in the BRI debt trap. According to a report, Bangladesh also must carefully negotiate any financial agreement. According to the Dhaka Tribune, China invested an estimated $9.75 billion in transportation projects in Bangladesh between 2009 and 2019. Okay, as I also previously said, and now getting to Africa, China's debt trap diplomacy is even more prominent in Africa. China is set to fund and construct one-third of all African infrastructure projects of the entire continent, mind you, not any country. They are frequently carried out without adequate research into the project's socio-economic, environmental, or even commercial viability. Angolia, for example, is using crude oil to repay multi-billion dollar debts to China, causing significant economic problems. You don't have enough highways? Boom! There you get one. It's free. It's Chinese money. What do you mean your country doesn't have enough cars to take use of the bridge? That is essentially what is happening. Even the Kenyan government attempted to renegotiate loan repayment terms after realizing the magnitude of the debt incurred by the Standard Gauge Railway or SGR project from Mombasa to Nairobi and further inland. Which, mind you, very few people use. You should Google it up. It's really interesting how futile that is. As a result, China's Exim Bank has stopped funding new infrastructure projects in Kenya and given Nairobi's apparent inability to service its debt, the threat of taking over Mombasa's hugely profitable port looms large. China has made economic inroads in Central Asia also to protect itself from political and security risks. All Central Asian countries rely on China to export and import goods, particularly medical equipment and pharmaceuticals in which Beijing is a global leader, and the debt is growing. Initially, Central Asian countries tried to balance their trade with Beijing by exporting gas, but Chinese imports from the region have increased by 1000% in the last decade. As a result, China has snatched several concessions from these countries, including Tajikistan's cession of about 1200 square kilometers of territory in the Pamir Mountains, and China's growing presence in Central Asia, through its private military companies or PMCs. China's global stronghold is apparent even beyond Asia and Africa. Montenegro is struggling to pay a multi-billion dollar loan from China for a highway built by China Road and Bridge Corporation. The proposed 270-mile road has only 25 miles completed and the host country cannot afford the remaining 25 miles. And all of this is just a taste of what China's Belt and Road Initiative entailed for China in the Balkans and beyond. Tonga, Samoa, and Vantuo are the most heavily indebted Pacific nations. And even the prevalence of the pandemic has exacerbated the flow of unnecessary funding for ongoing infrastructure development projects in Africa, which has seen a slowdown in economic growth. According to the IMF, Africa countries will require additional funding of up to $285 billion from 2021 to 25 to ramp up their spending in response to the COVID pandemic. Now get this, 
From 2000 to 2018, China has lent about $148 billion to Africa, mainly for large-scale infrastructure projects. The transportation and energy sectors have received around 66% of their loan amounting during the last five years. And since 2010, Chinese financial institutions have funded 70 projects in Africa each year, averaging $180 million in value. Zambia for copper, Kenya, Nigeria, Ghana, Angolia, Algeria, Mozambique, Egypt, Sudan, South Africa and Tanzania are among the African countries that have benefited from resource guarantee infrastructure financing. China is also currently the top bilateral lender in 32 African countries and the continent's top lender overall. Also, Kenya's external debt, valued at about $50 billion, is owned by China 72%. And according to sources, Kenya is expected to pay China Exim Bank alone $60 billion over the next few years. According to Kenya's Oiter General, if Kenya defaults on the loan repayment, the port of Mombasa could be lost. Widespread discontent in Angola in 2015 due to oil repayment against Chinese loans left the country with little crude oil to export. Nigeria's debt to China increased by about 136%, from $1.4 billion to $3.3 billion between 2010 and 2015. The story becomes even more intriguing as it progresses. So China aided Africa in constructing an African Union headquarters in Ethiopia, as if they, like, funded the infrastructure out of thin air, right? They just built them an African Union headquarters in Ethiopia. Okay, th- this is very interesting. Last year, this report comes out, claiming that Chinese hackers were obtaining security camera footage from inside the African Union headquarters. That very same building in Ethiopia which they built. Right. Then, this was confirmed by multiple sources. In Beijing's true intention in the resource-rich continent, China has a plethora of eavesdropping opportunities. At least 186 government buildings in Africa, including presidential residences, ministries of foreign affairs, and parliament buildings, have been built by Chinese companies, many of which are state-owned and legally obligated to cooperate with the Chinese Communist Party on intelligence matters. China has also been using Huawei made cameras to spy on the African Union headquarters. Huawei has built more than 70% of the continent's 4G networks and at least 14 intra-government ICT networks, including a data center in Zambia that houses the entirety of the government's records. The original story of this Chinese government's EU spying was broken by a report confirmed by two other media outlets, demonstrating what Beijing can do with a structure built by one of its own companies. Huawei, who frequently Swiss equipment, is chief with security vulnerabilities and that makes them easily exploitable. And they also supplied AU's compromised ICT system. Given Huawei's ties to China's Ministry of State Security, it's hard to believe Beijing doesn't have a good idea of getting access to those backdoors. There are numerous reasons for Beijing to take advantage of the spying opportunities provided by its company's activities in Africa. It can listen in on sensitive conversations they have with non-African counterparts, let's say. The Chinese government may be able to gather valid economic data to pass on to its many businesses on the continent. Many countries have significant infrastructure gaps, and Beijing is frequently willing to fund infrastructure projects. Affordable Chinese goods, particularly technology, such as smartphones, 
are also very popular on the African subcontinent. Nonetheless, the Chinese government expends a great deal of time and effort attempting to persuade African leaders to support Beijing's plan on a level that goes beyond simple concern for their country's national interests. Bribery, putting up flashy infrastructure projects during election seasons and lavishing no strings attached aid on rulers to feed their patronage are all part of these charm campaigns. When the officials discovered hidden microphones and cameras throughout the building and informed Chinese authorities, get this, they offered to come and help them fix it. This whole situation like, is hilarious and very frightening. It makes you think about a lot, especially since the US banned Huawei for allegedly spying on users' data and sending it back to China. So maybe that was entirely true. I'll also give you another example. In the Caribbean and Latin America, the BRI has 19 members. A transcontinental railway connecting South America's Atlantic and Pacific coast from Brazil to Chile is being constructed. A $3 billion port is being built by China Costco Shipping in Chanque, Peru. This is part of the CCP's culture of concealing the truth while projecting an unrealistic picture of hope. Millions of poor Chinese have been fed such lies since the revolution, right? By launching a prosperous image, the CCP has attempted to conceal its failures in human rights protection. And that is even I, I don't know how that's such a talking point for some people. Like, the CCP censorship around the Wuhan anniversary sought to silence dissenters following the COVID-19 families of those who died were harassed and activists were detained. And since July of last year, Foreign media have been routinely barred from reporting facts, most recently about the floods in Zengo. As a result, it's not surprising that China tries to hide its true intentions through seemingly benign outreach to unwitting allies. Kazakhstan, Laos, Mongolia, Montenegro, Pakistan and Kazakhstan have become highly vulnerable to this debt distress. This should serve as a warning to these countries and others who may face financial ruin as a result of the dangerous geopolitical game. So you got a pretty good idea of what this is by now. It's pure geopolitics to turn these countries into satellite states by strategically building infrastructure. As easy as that. And for years, China has been eyeing a westward shift and its desire to advance in Southeast Asia is well known. Also, the Belt and Road Initiative had its flaws, right? The China-Pakistan economic corridor has harmed Sino-Indian relations, while political upheaval in Southeast Asia is linked to China's growing visibility in power. Okay, so before I end, I'll tell you this. In contrast to the Trump administration's preference for bilateralism, a multilateral approach is the most effective counter to Chinese regional ambitions. The Trans-Pacific Partnership should be used to re-engage economically in the region, as it will allow the US to strengthen their ties with many BRI participants. Meanwhile, the US should also discourage specific infrastructure projects that have no discernible benefit to their host countries through diplomatic channels. Above all, the US, being the alleged superpower that it is, should not let the construction of dual-use infrastructure that could house the People's Liberation Army's deployments one day happen. It is past time for skeptics and the rest of the world to see China for what it truly desires and what it's shaping up to be, regardless of whatever it tries to sell the rest of the world. They want 
world dominance. Don't get me wrong, it is very similar to what the US did throughout the 20th century. But still, the stakes are much higher in this era. And if Sri Lanka has anything to teach us, it is a perfect example of that, with many more nations to follow and no one but ordinary citizens to suffer. Once again, that's about it for today. And thank you so much for sticking by till the end. So before I end, regardless of whatever platform you're listening to this on, head above or below and give the podcast a rating. I would genuinely appreciate that. If you haven't already, it would actually genuinely mean a lot to me. So that was all about Dead Chat Diplomacy. Share this episode if you liked it and check out my other episodes. All 43 of them till now. Take care, have a great day, and I'll see you exactly in 7. Bye.